Well, good morning again. It is a joy and privilege for me to be here with you again this morning. Um, it is a blessing for me to fill in for your beloved pastor, um, whom I've had the privilege of getting to know over the past few months. I thank God for, for him and for you all. Um, and it's a privilege, and I am delighted to have this opportunity to come before you and bring you God's word. So with that, let's begin. So John Newton was born in 1725 to a shipmaster in Wapping, London. At age 11, he went to sea with his father and what began a many decades, or two or three decades, of sailing the open seas. Now in 1743, he was forced into the Navy and served there for about two years until he became a sailor on a slave ship, the Pegasus. Now, th this slave ship would sail between England and Africa, trading goods for people. John Newton was a bad man. It was ba he was bad enough that after one humiliating experience, he plotted to kill his ship captain and then commit suicide. He eventually decided against it. And then again, after being, and after being sold into slavery himself, after being rescued, the ship he was riding began to sink. This, this experience brought about in him a fear. And a couple years later, he got sick and again became scared. God used these two experiences in his life to bring him to faith in Jesus Christ. Newton eventually became a, a minister in the Church of England, where he preached, he counseled, he wrote, and he, wrote some, and he sang hymns. And 40 years later, Newton came out and broke his silence on the slave trade. He opposed it. He said it was an evil. And he became a key ally to William Wilberforce, who led the parliamentary campaign to abolish the African slave trade. Newton lived to see the abolition of such a horrific institution, when in 1807, the Slave Trade Act abolished this slave trade. This former sinner was a saint, and this former slave trader was an abolitionist. That's quite a remarkable story if you think about it. Right? Here was a guy who used to trade slaves, until God got a hold of him, and he saw the wickedness of such trade, and God changed him. But you know what's interesting? I know that you and I probably don't have a story like that. But if you're a Christian, do you realize your story is just as good? Right? I don't pretend, though, to know every detail of your life. But what I do know are the most important parts of your life. And with that, will you take a look with me on page 976 of your pew Bible as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now before we read the passage, I want to just provide a little context for this book. Uh, the, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. Now an apostle is someone who has been called by Jesus Christ who has seen the risen Christ 
and is then commissioned to go and preach the gospel. And Paul, if you want to learn a little bit more about his conversion, uh, you can read Acts 9 to see that. Now again, so that's who wrote it. But what was Paul's purpose? Well, Paul wrote Ephesians to tell the Ephesian church about the magnificent grace of God. Chapter 1 is about extolling praising God for his glorious grace. That's what Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is. It's an extended praise to God for his grace. And that's really what chapters 1 through 3 are all about. The gospel of Jesus Christ. God saving sinners by grace through faith. And chapter 4 through 6 is really how then should we live in light of that grace. And it's, it's, it's important to remember uh, that in Ephesians, or in most of Paul's letters, he starts with the gospel first, God's response to our sin, and then our response to God. So this morning we're going to be parachuting right into the middle of the gospel in, in chapter 2, follow along with me as I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I have to confess, it's probably, I could probably just read this for the next 35 minutes, and that would be a sufficient sermon in itself. But nevertheless, we're going we're gonna to keep going. So uh, as, as you read that, my question for you is, what's your story? We heard about John Newton's story, but what's your story? Well, I have a, I have a proposal that there are three parts to every Christian story. Part one, the old you. Did you notice in uh, chapter two, verse one, he says to the Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, the Ephesians, like us, were dead in their sins. And so then the question is, what is sin? Well, sin is fundamentally rebellion against God. It is a rejection of God and his authority. And the Bible here plainly states that the Ephesians 
were dead. They were dead in their sins. They were dead in their trespasses. They were literally walking in rebellion against God. And that's what, that's what trespasses means. It means offense. The Ephesians had offended God with their lives, with their sin. And thus, they're dead. Now you might be asking, what exactly does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, Paul describes this in verses 2 and 3. He says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. See, the scriptures often use walking as a synonym for living. So this, this passage means, and it's, it's kind of, it seems ironic, but the Ephesians were dead as they lived in sin. So that's an important point, is that we can physically be alive. We can be breathing, we can be walking, we can be living life, doing our jobs, loving our families, and yet be dead to God. And that is what Paul is stating here. Dead to God, but yet living. And as you notice, though, as you read this passage, this, this death is not an inactive state of neutrality. No, it's actually a consistent, active rebellion to God. That's why there's all these verbs of, of walking, of following the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience and whom we all once lived. So the opposition that, that the Ephesians were showing towards God was an active opposition. And this opposition looks like following the world. Not the, not the physical earth as we understand it, but the principles and ways that the world who is opposed to God, how they live. And even worse, he says, you were following according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, that's a title that's referred and given to Satan alone. So it's no surprise then that we're under God's wrath because we are actively, if we are not Christians, we are actively following the devil. We are actively following him who caused the first rebellion. We're actively following the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden and then plunged all of mankind into depravity. We are following God's enemy. Now, I, I want to uh, make a couple comments on the devil um, really quick. The first is, he is real, and he has real power in this world. Amen. He is a real entity. I know we live in a time where we, so much of what we think is real is defined by our five senses, right? If we can't hear it, see it, taste it, touch it, feel it, it doesn't exist. That is the narrative that we hear in our culture. You know, we live in a very materialistic culture. And I'm not talking about someone who loves the mall, loves possessions, loves that. I'm talking about a, a, a way of thinking, a way of viewing the world where it completely denies the spiritual reality. And the Bible presents there is a spiritual world. 
There is a spiritual world that has far greater implications for our lives than we realize. And one of Satan's greatest tricks is getting us to believe that he doesn't exist and getting us to believe that he doesn't have any power. So the two things I want us to note about the devil is he's real and he has real power. But do you realize, though, if you are a not a believer, do you realize that you are unknowingly following the evil one? And do you realize if you're a believer, you are constantly being bombarded by the evil one, whom you cannot see? But that's when we look to Scripture. So then what does this following or former way of living look like for the Ephesians? Well, Paul describes it. He says, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is a comprehensive sinfulness. He talks of the mind, the body, the flesh, and desires and passions imply our hearts. This is a comprehensive depravity. And so this bondage to sin means that all of our lives are turned away from God. There's not a good part in us. And as Martin Luther tragically says, it says, we are turned inward on ourselves. We are focused on us and ourselves rather than God. So brothers and sisters, do you remember that period of your life when you didn't know God, when you opposed Him, when you ran contrary to His ways? How did that go for you? For me, it was a train wreck. Broken relationships, ton of sin, pain, and sorrow. Now, you, your, your brokenness your, may not have been as out, outward and as public as mine, but regardless of how bad you look on the, on the outside, all of those who are sinners are just as far from God. And just as it was true with the Ephesians, it was true for us today. Now, how then do we know if we are following God or the ways of this world? Here's a question. Do you obey your heart and what you want to do, or do you obey God and what he wants? It's simple. If the guiding principle in your life is you and not God's word, then you are following the world and not God. Now, I want to be careful about that because I realize that Christians are walking contradictions, right? We love God, yet we are still fighting our sin, right? Sin has not left us yet, but there is a battle going on inside of us. But if there's no battle going on inside of you, you have good reason to think you may not be a Christian, so let me ask a couple of questions. When you work at your job, do you do it for God's glory or do you do it for your own? Husbands, when you talk to your wife, do you talk to her with kindness and gentleness and patience with her good in view? Or do you speak just to get things off your chest? If you're a child, if, do, you, do you obey your parents 
because it pleases God or because you don't merely want to be grounded. Simply put, do you obey do you obey God's commands or do you do what you want? But you may be asking, well, what does it matter, right? What does it matter if I live for God or I live for myself? Well, that's what verse three. That's what verse three tells us. He says, "You were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." Paul is saying here that left to ourselves, we are naturally under the wrath of God. By simple birth and our own disposition, all of us are those who deserve God's wrath. We are those who are under His judgment. And God is not merely a God of love. He is a holy God. He is good. He is righteous. He will not tolerate sin. There is no darkness in him. So God's wrath is actually an outworking of his moral purity. He must judge sin or he, let, or he ceases to be just. And so that means that our biggest problem is not Congress, our commute, the media, our spouse, our doctor, our health, our lack of opportunities, or a fellow church member. Our biggest problem is the wrath of God for our sin. The problem is that God is holy and we are not. And that's not just, that's not just limited to those who are in this room. That's why Paul says, like the rest of mankind, all of humanity is under God's judgment. All of humanity deserves His wrath. Let's go back to the text. That even as the rest has profound implications for how we think about evangelism. right? If, if God's wrath is not just on, on those in this room, or we're, is not just on those here who don't believe the gospel, but it's on those who are throughout the world, then we should be a church. You should be a church committed to spreading the gospel through all nations. And I thank God for you all and how you support the Southern Baptist Convention as they seek to spread the gospel to all nations. That's a great work. So let me encourage you, continue to spread the gospel. So if you're not a Christian, do you understand what this means? you understand that you're under the wrath of God? I mean, can we honestly think that we are good enough to stand before God? God is, po he is perfect. And we are far from it. And Jesus himself supports this when he says, who does, who does not ever obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So it's not just Paul, but it's Jesus himself who says this. Now, if you were a believer, I hope you were noticing as we read the past tense of the verbs. You were dead. You once walked. You once lived. You were by nature. Do you realize that you were once a God-hater, but now, by God's grace, you're a lover of God? You formerly hated God. Maybe you were proud, arrogant, you boasted, you were self-righteous, you lied, you loved your sin. 
And this is the first part of the story. That's who we used to be. But doesn't Jesus change things? Doesn't he change us? We were in Adam, but now we're in Christ. That is worth praising God for. So the first part of our, of our story, Christian, is that we were dead. The second part is the change. And this is part two. We're going to look at verse five now, where Paul says, When we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. Paul begins, when we were dead, to remind the Ephesians of what they were like before God, before Christ. He contrasts their deadness in their sins with being made alive with Christ. So what we needed, and there's no other way to read this verse, is that we needed God to make us alive. We were dead in sin, but because of his grace, God has made us alive in Jesus Christ. We couldn't do this. We couldn't cause ourselves to live. We needed God to bring us alive. And that's what Jesus talks about in John 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him in the night and says, Hey, talk to me. What, what, what's going on? How can, how can I enter heaven? And Jesus says, You must be born again. And Nicodemus says, Wait, wait. I need to get back inside my mother? He says, No, no, no. You need to be born from above. And that's what Paul is talking about here. It is God who makes us alive. This is an act done by God in us. We have no part in God making us alive. We were dead. We were opposed to God. But God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh that is a living heart, a new spiritual heart, a heart that hates sin, a heart that loves God. And how does he do this? He unites us to his son. We are united to Jesus Christ by faith. And what does that mean? Well, I love what Martin Luther says. He says, Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sin, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace Life and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. So when we are united to Christ, he gets our sin. He gets our death. He gets our condemnation. And we get his righteousness. We get his life. We get his grace. We get what he deserves. And he takes what we deserve. That is the great exchange. Our sin is laid upon him. His righteousness clothes us. What a blessed hope we have. What a glorious transaction that is. God pardons the guilty. He makes righteous the wicked. He cleanses the dirty. And all because of his grace. Not because of anything that is in us. But all that is in God. He transfers us from death to life. And so I think this then has implications for how we should think about church. Church then should be about worshiping the risen Christ. Church should be about God, praising him, 
singing to him, hearing his word, reading his word. So church should be about God, not about us. But that also means that membership in the local church should be about should belong to those who belong to Jesus. Church should be a place where God's people gather. Those who are in Christ gather together to hear from God. And yet, as good as all of this is, this is only part of the second part. God doesn't just make us alive and leave us there. No, take a look with me to verse 6. He says, God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul here is pointing, again, he's further elaborating on what it means to be united to Christ. He's pointing to the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. So Paul here is tying the the new life of the believer with Jesus Christ himself. So wherever Jesus goes, if you're a Christian, if you belong to him, you too will go. So Jesus has been raised. He has been seated. Therefore, we will be raised and we will be seated. God has forgiven us in Christ so that we would be with him forever. I've heard it said this way, that our wagon is hitched to Jesus' wagon. Right? So you have a truck that has a hitch. We're the trailer on the truck. Right? The trailer doesn't push the car forward. The trailer is just dead weight in some sense. Right? We are hitched to Jesus. He takes us home. So when you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus, you will go wherever he goes. So that means in this life, we will face trials. We will face suffering. Because we follow one who suffers. And we know that we will too pass through death. But that death is a doorway. It's a doorway to take us to Jesus. And you can have certain assurance of this because God is faithful and will never forsake you. If you want to learn a little bit more about union with Christ and it's biblical foundation, let me encourage you to look through Ephesians and highlight and underline anywhere where you see in him, in Christ, or with Christ. I I did it yesterday through the first two chapters, and I counted 20 instances of what the believer has or who he is in Jesus Christ. It's a marvelous exercise. Now to to the older saints... I want to encourage you. I hope this is a great encouragement to you. As you face illness, death, physical pain, and loss, there is coming a day when you will not only, where you're not only united to Jesus Christ by faith, but you will be united to him by sight. You will see him. There's a day coming when you will be raised from the grave with a body that's imperishable, and with a body that is glorified, and you will be with Jesus forever. Never to shed a tear, never to be sad, never to ache, never to have pain. So let me encourage you, hold on to this hope. Latch on to this hope. 
And do not let this hope go as Christ lays hold of you. And after that, we're left with the question, though, why? Why would God make alive such terrible people? Why would he do this? That's right. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's amazing. God brought you from death to life because he loves you. He loves you, not because of anything in you, not because of anything in me, but because of everything in him. And when did he love us? Verse, chapter 1, verse 3. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. The love of God extends all the way back into eternity past before the world began. God's love for you has never had a beginning. Therefore, it will never have an end. God's love is an eternal love. The God of the universe loves you. He set his love upon you. He's done this through Jesus. He's done this, why? As verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages you might show, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you. God has shown you love that he might be kind to you forever. That he might show you grace and mercy and love for all of eternity. So our, uh, the love of God is not so much about us. It's everything about God. And we will one day be in heaven with God, praising Him as He lavishes His love upon us. And J.I. Packer, he, he says, to know God's love is indeed heaven on earth. Isn't the love of God now such a solace to you in your trials or when you're struggling with sin. Because think about it. If, if, if God's love for us was based on what we did. And our keeping of ourselves. We would have lost that love a long time ago. But if, if the love of God is from eternity past. Before we ever sinned. Then it has nothing to do with how good we are. And it has everything to do with God. And if God's love is now heaven on earth. Can you imagine what God's love is going to be when we're actually in heaven? It's going to be far greater than anything we could have ever imagined. It's a, 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 knowledge, it's a, a knowledge that surpasses understanding. And God invites us to know him and be with him forever. Um, have you ever been invited to something where you really had no business being invited at all? Like you were just the what you were invited to was just way out of your league. Well, I in, in my life I can't really think of anything, so I, I I came up with something. Let's just imagine here for a moment. Imagine Cal Ripken Jr. personally inviting you to sit with him in his VIP suite at all of the O's game at Camden Yards this upcoming season. Now, and what I mean by that is you are personally invited by the legend of the, of the Baltimore Orioles. You get to sit in his suite. He provides rides to the game. You never have to do anything. 
You simply just have to show up. You get to watch the O's play with the Iron Man himself. If that happened to me, I'm not an O's fan, but that would be a tough offer to turn down. Right? Like this is Cal Ripken Jr. Right? What an offer that would be. You know, I I live in DC, so I might even take him up and even if I have to travel an hour to every game, as long as I'm not driving and he's and I, he's providing for me to get up there, I might be going. I mean, that's an offer that, that seems almost unimaginable. But that can that pales in comparison to what God offers us. He has provided everything for us. And in heaven, there's no off-season. There's no extra inning losses. And above that, there's no death. There's no sadness. There's only joy and praise and, and glory and honor and God's presence forever. So if you're discouraged with your circumstances, your health, your fight with sin, remember, you have heaven before you. You have a real hope. And God has made you alive that you would live with him forever. And so a practical application here is if we're going to worship God forever, let's start now. Right? Let's start practicing for heaven. Right? Let's, let's sing songs with joy. Let's praise our God. Let's pray. Let's worship this God whom we're going to spend eternity with. What we do now is an indicator of what we will be doing in the next life. Let us go and praise our God. And if you're here, and this is, this is a key part of our story, right? Our story doesn't end in this life. Right? Our story is one that spans across all of time into eternity. That's a fantastic story. And this is a story written by God. So if you're here and you're not a part of this story, I wonder what's your story? Do you find yourself constantly trying to better yourself only to fall back into old patterns? Or maybe you make some progress. Maybe you change your behavior, but it's still not enough. Or maybe you don't think you need God because life is going well. Maybe you're a pretty good person. Or maybe your story's empty. Well, let me invite you into the best story. Let me invite you into God's story. It's a story about God working through Jesus Christ. It's a story about God taking on flesh and coming to live among us. Those who hate him. He has the power to change your heart to love him. It's finally a story about God. And God invites you today to find your place in his story by repenting and trusting in his son. It's a story that has no ends. I know I hate when I'm reading a good book, it's a good story, and it ends. I hate that. I'm like, keep writing. C.S. Lewis said about Jane Austen that she is such a good writer, why did she write so many few books? He was angry with Jane Austen because he said her books were too short and she didn't write enough. That is not the case with God's story. God's story has no end. You will not be disappointed with God's story. And so we've talked about how this, this message of grace is for those who were dead. It's a message that makes God's people alive. 
But what then happens? Well, our last part of our story is the new you. So we have the old, we have the change, and now we have the new. Paul says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with him, walk in them. So as those who are in Jesus Christ, we are his new creation. God remakes us. He renovates us. He restores us. And rather than being marred by sin, we are now able by his grace and his spirit. We're empowered to obey him, to glorify him, to reflect him. And again, this is done in Christ Jesus. All of your Christian life can be summed up as in Christ. So my, my wife and I, I'm just now admitting this, but my wife and I love the show Fixer Upper. Um, we love it for many reasons. Uh, we love watching Chip and Joanna Gaines take what looks like a dilapidated house, right? It's got paneling falling off, the deck is rotting, paint's peeling, and no one has mowed the yard in like seven and a half years, right? And then what happens? Well, the, the Gaines get a hold of it, right? Uh, Chip starts building stuff, and, and, and Joanna starts envisioning what it should look like. They begin working their magic, right? They begin rethinking the layout. They tear down what is old and falling apart, and they replace it with the new. We love this show because we get to see something that we hadn't seen before. You know, you know they do the before and after, and you, like, you look at the before, and you're like, they ain't doing nothing with that house. And then you see the after, and you're like, how did they get from the old to the new? It's remarkable. They literally renovate and take down the old and undesirable and turn it into the new and the sought after. It's amazing. And God does this with us, except on a grander scale. He takes what is marred and maligned by sin, and he renovates us. He works in us. He washes us. He tears down the old desires of our heart and gives us new desires. Desires that used to be about ourselves and desires that are for Him. And so salvation then is not merely a response of yes to God. But it's actually God forgiving us and slowly and surely changing us, renovating us, making us new. We are fully cleansed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then God, by his spirit, is slowly transforming us more and more into his image. And rather than walking in sin, we now walk in the good works that God has planned for us. Right? So we no longer live for ourselves, but we live in gratitude for God. We, we do good works, that is, works that are done according to God's word, from a sincere heart, by God's grace, for God's glory. He, and as Paul says in Ephesians 1, he says he has blessed us in Christ and chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God's grace is not a license for us to do whatever we want, but it's how God empowers us to obey him and live lives of holiness. Praise God that he not only saves us, but he continues to change us until when we are in heaven and we will have no more sin and we will be glorified reflecting our Savior. And so how do we know if we've experienced that change? Well, I think first, 
a life of humility. Paul says in verse 8 to 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Christian life is one of humility before God. Not of boasting. We have no room for boasting. It's excluded on all grounds. Because God has saved us by, our great, by His grace. The only thing that we bring to our salvation is our sin. Who can boast about that? If only, the only thing we contributed was our sin. So then we should be a, you, CBC, should be a congregation marked by thankfulness to God and humility. Humility means seeing ourselves rightly in light of God's greatness. It's not thinking highly of ourselves, but thinking rightly of ourselves. So then we should not only be humble, but we should be marked by the kindness that God has shown us. We should be patient, considering others more valuable than yourselves. Here's another test. How well do you share credit? We should be quick to give credit to others. There's nothing more stubborn than taking credit for something that doesn't belong to you. Above all, we should be giving credit to God for his mighty work of redemption. The last mark is good works. Christ in Christ Jesus for good works. So rather than living for ourselves, we should live for others. Martin Luther says, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So as you think about how you can serve, look at what the scriptures say about how we should serve. The Ten Commandments are a great place to start. So if you think about it, just an example. Thou shall not steal, right? Okay, that don't take. But do you know implied in that is you should be generous, right? Thou shall not kill, right? Thou shall serve and protect life, right? Thou shall not covet. You should be grateful and thankful for what others have. So there's a lot that the scriptures say about our obedience. So when you think about doing good works, think about what do the scriptures say. Ask God to give you grace because you know that it is his will that we should be zealous for good works. Now I want to say that good works will look different for each person depending on the gifts, the time, the ability. So just ask God to show you how you can serve. And this is a story that is really one of change. Like we were walking dead in our sins, and now, by God's grace, we walk in newness of life, obeying his commands. Now, back to that slave trader. I'm sure you know this, but I didn't mention it before. That former slave trader wrote Amazing Grace because he knew what a wretch he was. But John Newton also knew that God's grace was amazing. That his grace had found him out and redeemed him. And that amazing grace led to a life of good works, bringing glory to God. That is a powerful story of grace. So then what makes a good story? I think the best stories are those written and orchestrated by God. And if you're a Christian, he's written your story. 
You are in his story. It's a story of mercy, of love, of grace. It's a story that has no end. And above all, it's God's story. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you, O oh God, for your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to find ourselves in your story, that you would receive all of the glory. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.